Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Uh, if you need a Bible this morning uh, at Calvary Chapel, if you're not familiar with us, you're visiting with us, we uh, go verse by verse through the scriptures. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 3. If you don't, just raise your hand and uh, Jake's back there in the back. He'll get you a Bible. Jonah chapter 3. We've covered Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2 already. In Jonah chapter 1, our focus was on rebellion and disobedience, which we saw in the life of Jonah in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Jonah prays to God. We see a time of repentance. And today, as we look at Jonah chapter 3, we're going to see uh, repentance and revival both at work uh, in the lives of Jonah and the Ninevites. So Jonah chapter 3, we'll start off with verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, as always, that we just have the awesome opportunity to gather together as a body of believers and be encouraged by your word. Lord, I pray that this morning uh, my words would be your words, Lord, that you would speak through me the truth that you desire all of us to hear, Lord, that would impact our hearts and impact our lives so that we might make application from it. So, Lord, bless our time of study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Repent, for tomorrow is not promised to you. If that seems a little strange, I had in my notes long, awkward pause right there, just, just so you know. That was the reason for that, kind of let that sink in. But I say again, repent, for tomorrow is not promised to you. Eight words, just eight words. Now, let's suppose that's all I said this morning. Let's suppose I just walked up here. Uh, I spoke these eight words, repent, for tomorrow is not promised to you. And then I walked back down. And that, and that was it. Well, what would you think? Uh, what would your reaction be? Some of you might say, wow, that was, that was kind of short. Some of you might say, wow, that was, that was profound. Some of you might be, wow, thinking maybe I should repent. Some of you might even be thinking, you know, that's the most interesting thing he said in the past two weeks. And then some of you might be going, brilliant, stimulating. Let's go eat. <laughs> well, we're going to see in our text this morning that, that Jonah gets a second chance to speak the Lord's message to the Ninevites. And his message is really very simple. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to the message that I tell you. Go to Nineveh and preach to them the message that I tell you. He didn't even know what the message was going to be at this point. And this is quite the departure from what we saw in chapter 1 where God says go and Jonah said no and moved the other direction, right? We see Jonah being a little more obedient at this point. We can understand why, <laughs> given his past week or whatever it's been. So we left off on Wednesday night in chapter 2, verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Vomited. 
ejected with force. We also see that the fish was immediately obedient, didn't he? He he said, God said to the fish, vomit Jonah up on dry land, and the fish did it. We also need to be obedient to the last thing that God tells us to do. We can learn that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Jonah, and Jonah's disobedience. Now, I know we're done with the fish part of this story. We had fun with that, but I've still got some questions in my mind regarding that story. Like, like who was more relieved? Jonah to be out of the fish, or the fish for to have Jonah out of him, you know? And did anyone see Jonah being disgorged on, onto dry land? It would have been interesting, I'm sure. And what about Jonah? Was, was he bleached white from spending time in the, the fish's gastric juices? Uh, did he lose all his hair? Did he look so peculiar that no one could doubt who he was and what had happened to him? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us about all of that. We can presume that maybe that's what took place. But we do know, as we looked at the text on Wednesday night, that God was where Jonah was. You see, God is more concerned about His workers than He is even about their work. If the workers are what they ought to be, then the work will be what it ought to be. Makes sense, doesn't it? And as displeased as God may have been with Jonah, we know that He was with him all along. When, Jon- when God called Jonah the first time, as Jonah ran to Joppa, as he was in the ship, as he was in the storm, as he was in the calm after the storm, in the fish, out of the fish, God had always been and still is with Jonah. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And Jonah can rest now in that because he knows it to be true. He knows at this point he is once again usable by God. So verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, We all know and we've experienced that God is a God of second chances. Amen? And third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, and eighth, and ninth, and tenth, and eleventh. You get what I'm talking about, don't you? We even see from Scripture how God used men again and again in spite of what they had done, in spite of their disobedience. Abraham denied that Sarah was his wife, and he watched as she was carried off off twice. Twice Abraham did that. Moses murdered a man and tried to cover his sin by burying the body in sand. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then also plotted to have Uriah, her husband, murdered. Peter denied Jesus by the enemy's fire. All men who failed terribly, but whom God continued to use faithfully, time and time again. We can relate because we have seen it time and time again in our own lives that God hasn't given up on us. We've ignored Him. We've grieved Him. God corrects us, rebukes us, instructs us. But most importantly, He forgives us. Giving people second chances is God's delight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, obviously, to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. You remember in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Jesus told a profound story about a son who went to his dad and he said, Hey dad, give me my inheritance. I want to go into a far country and, and do my own thing. His dad, knowing what his son would do, gave him the money anyway. The son spent his father's money on wine, women, and song until the famine hit. Destitute and impoverished, he got a job feeding pigs. But after he had had his fill of eating pig slop and sleeping in the pig pen, he, says, he finally said, I'll go home and be a servant in my dad's house. At least that will be better than being here with these pigs. Now, much to his surprise, upon his return, his father ran out to welcome him home. Instead of getting busted, he got a banquet. Instead of getting kicked, he got kissed. Now, what do you think would happen if after a few months, the son had said, I'm going to go back to the far country again. I believe the father would have let him go and then would have welcomed him home again. And eventually, after the third or fourth or eighth or tenth trip home, the son would have finally said, I'm tired of hanging out with pigs. And he would have returned home to stay. You see, the difference between the prodigal and the pig is the prodigal finally says, I don't belong here. So too, the child of God might find himself in the pig pen from time to time, and maybe in the belly of a fish upon occasion, but he won't stay there. How do you know when God is working with you? You want to get out of the pig pen. You don't want to stay where you are, right? You'll go back home eventually, and each time you do, the Father will be there to greet you, to receive you, and as He did to Jonah, to speak to you as what He had for you to, for you to do for Him another time. Now in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. And the Lord says in verse 2, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Okay, Jonah, it's round two. Are you going to follow God's direction this time? Are you going to go in the right direction this time? God is saying to Jonah, you've been through a lot. I've taught you a lot, but I want to use you again. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So this time Jonah hears and obeys the word of the Lord. Hold your place in Jonah and turn over to the book of James in the New Testament. It's way back by the maps, the book of James. James chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. 
But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We've got a promise there at the end of that verse, don't we? Be blessed in what he does if we're a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Key question for us this morning. Do you mark your Bible or does your Bible mark you? Now James compares the Word of God, the Word of the Lord, to a mirror. And we use mirrors for a number of reasons. Uh, One is reflection. We simply want to see ourselves, don't we? Yeah, I'm looking good, you know. We want to look at ourselves in the mirror. It does give us a true representation of ourselves. That's reflection. Number two, for examination. Up-close scrutiny of ourselves. Where did that come from? Or, oh, that's going to take some work. So we use them for reflection, we use them for examination, for restoration, making improvements to those visible flaws that we find, right? Well, I can do this to help that, or I can use this to cover that up, or things like that. So restoration, but also transformation. When we're all done, to feel clean and refreshed and renewed, you know, whoa, I look, I look totally different. I look good. I feel totally different. Well, God's Word is supposed to be that for the soul as well. Think about those four things. Reflection, examination, restoration, and transformation. God's Word does that in our lives as we look into that mirror, which is God's Word. The question might come up then, how much time is spent in front of a mirror and how much time is spent in God's Word each day? Probably depends on the face, I suppose. (laughs) Years ago, uh, a woman in J. Vernon McGee's congregation came to him and asks, uh, Preacher, is it okay for a woman to wear makeup? To which J. Vernon McGee responded, Sister, if the barn needs painted, paint it. (laughs) So we see in this, continuing this verse, that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Nineveh was a great city. It was a great city in history. The city was founded at ancient times by Noah's great-grandson Nimrod. It was a great city in size. The circumference of the city and its suburbs was about 60 miles. It was a great city in wealth. Uh, merchants traveled the empire and brought great wealth into the city. But it was also a great city in sin. The Assyrians were known far and wide for their violence and debauchery. Now we know Las Vegas is called Sin City. But I believe Nineveh would make Vegas look good. Nineveh was in a bad spot. This verse also says that it was a three-day journey in extent. Three days journey, it it either means three days to get around the city, three days to get through the city, or three days to kind of visit all of the area. We don't know for sure, but three days. Simply put, this city was big. It was a big city. Now verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now throughout Scripture, the number forty is one of judgment and trial. We see it used time and time again. 
The children of Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, it rained on Noah 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And here Jonah declares that it would be only 40 days until Nineveh was destroyed. Now, sec- check out the simplicity of Jonah's message here. Eight words. Just eight words. Eight words profound in meaning. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh, you better change or in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. Now as we sit here today in the United States and we know how church operates, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this any way to reach a whole city? In, in our experience, it really doesn't found, uh, sound uh, evangelistically correct, does it? How would we reach Nineveh today? I think it would look drastically different than the method used here. But, of course, we would have to develop a church planting program with at least eight steps, I think. Step one would be to receive a vision from God. Step two would perform a demographic study. Step three, define a church planting focus group. Four, develop a church planting team. Step five, identify resources. Step six, evangelize unreached people. Step seven, launch that public ministry. And step eight, mobilize and multiply that ministry. Now those who developed this program, this is an actual program, have said to expect at least five years before any significant growth. I don't know, but it seems like God's plan for Nineveh was a lot more efficient and effective and quicker. God sends one man, armed with the word of the Lord, to a large city with a short message, repent or suffer the consequences. And we're going to see what what happens. God says, I can get the whole city to repent with the right message from the right man. And we'll see in the next few verses just what happened here. Now, again, the question comes up, is that really all Jonah said? That's all we have in the text. That's what God included in His Word. But you have to think it was probably more, that there were questions involved. And what about this messenger? As we talked before, did these gastric juices in the belly of the fish bleach him white? Did it cause him to lose all his hair? Was there some level of shock value to his appearance? Maybe, and it it would be cause for questions, required an explanation. For Jonah, maybe he'd have to tell a fish story, a big fish story. But let's not forget, no matter what Jonah looked like, no matter how he communicated, he was chosen by God for this mission. He was armed with the word of the Lord for this mission. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word on its own merit, it's sufficient to move the hearts of its hearers, regardless or in spite of the messenger. I'm trusting in that this morning. (laughs) So regardless of where the hearts of the people were after they heard this message, based on their actions, they truly believed that if they didn't change, 
they would be destroyed. Verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now notice that the text doesn't say that they believed in God, just they believed God. There's a difference. The people of Nineveh believed God when he said in 40 days judgment was coming. They believed that. So the Ninevites proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth and ashes. So fasting. Fasting is denying bodily appetites in order to give more attention to the things of the Lord. To strengthen the spirit and weaken the flesh. It's a time of seeking God's face. So the real issue with fasting is to, not, to deny the flesh and spend time with the Lord. Simply put, that's what fasting is all about. So whenever we're fasting, we need to be focused upon the Lord. Now, sackcloth and ashes. This was done as a display of extreme remorse, repentance, or grief. This term refers to the ancient Hebrew custom of indicating humility before God by wearing a coarse cloth, normally used to make sacks. You get the connection? Sack, cloth, you with me? Great, it's pretty simple. (laughs) That's why they call it that. And then, after putting on this sackcloth, they would dust oneself with ashes, or even dirt, if they didn't have any ashes. So, basically, think about it like this. You're clothing yourself in humility, wearing this coarse cloth, this sackcloth. You're becoming low before the Lord. So, basically, you're dressed down and in the dirt before God, in humility. Now, examples from Scripture, we see both of these done together in times of repentance. And the text here doesn't indicate that this was something that Jonah instructed them to do. But through some type of religiosity or tradition, they chose to fast and put on sackcloth and ashes. Verse 6, Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands." The king is now in on the action. He, he's not just committed to it himself, but he's made a proclamation as well. It now became law for all the people and the animals. Am I the only one that finds that a little strange? <laughs> it says herd or flock, man or beast, animals, pets. Maybe they had pets, maybe they had sheep, maybe they had cattle, maybe they had pigs. Who knows what they had, but all of this livestock was supposed to be in sackcloth and ashes as well. Just the actual act of making that happen had to be interesting. You know, man, this sackcloth just doesn't fit my pig the way it used to. I don't know. Why the animals as well? I I don't know. 
I really don't know. Now, if you think about it, years ago, when hearse were pulled by, uh, you know, carriages were pulled by horses, we do know that they did cover them with black as the mourning thing goes on because sackcloth and ashes was used for mourning as well. And we know that to this day, most hearse are still black, right? You don't see any pink hearse running down the road. I, I haven't, anyway. So maybe it's not all that strange, but I, I got to think with as many people that lived in Nineveh and as much livestock and herds and flocks as they had, <laughs> this had to be something to behold, to say the least. An entire city fasting in sackcloth and ashes as well as all of the animals. Praying to the Lord. Now, I don't believe the animals were praying. Uh, just so you guys know, that's not... I, I just don't think they were doing that, but um, they weren't bowing before the Lord. We don't believe that at all. But why was Nineveh doing this? Because they thought they were about to be destroyed. A Fox News article published on September 11, 2002 was titled, Church Attendance Back to Normal. And it read, the emotional pain and search for answers after September 11, 2000, had many flocking to religious services like never before. But like many of the initial post-attack phenomenon, church attendance has since returned to normal. Now this would have been written two years after uh, September 11th. A surge of spirituality occurred as Americans examined just how fragile life was and evaluated what was really important. Answers were hard to come by in the months that followed the attacks, and many sought solace in a higher power. By some estimates, on the Sunday following the terror attacks, roughly half of the adult population in the United States attended a religious service. But the attendance dropped off starting in November. According to Barna Research, a polling firm that specializes in religious data, Religious activity is back to just about what it was before the attacks. Again, two years after. George Barna himself expressed amazement at the outcome of the study. He went into the project expecting to see a lasting spiritual impact following the attacks. He said, and he was very surprised to find that people had gone back to the way they were spiritually before September 11th. You see, we know from the book of Nahum that although the Ninevites are repenting here. Unfortunately, it didn't last. So in verse 9, the king says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from His fierce anger so that we may not perish? So the Ninevites, they're fasting and praying. They're humbling themselves before God. In these actions, they're sending a message up to heaven even though they had no assurance that they would be saved. They just had to trust that God was merciful and compassionate towards them. And what happens? Verse 10, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. And like I said at the beginning, there are two main things going on in this chapter. Repentance, and revival. Now we've seen in the life of Jonah individually true repentance. And we've also seen in the life of Jonah individually because of repentance, revival. Back on track with God. 
And in us, the same thing is true. If we confess our sins, repent of our wrongdoing, God brings revival in our hearts and lives. He promises it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Peter instructs the people in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So that times of refreshing may come. What's this refreshing? Revival. Revival in our hearts. James says in chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. What is this lifting up we experience when we humble ourselves? Revival. Revival in our hearts. Our subject matter here today, I know, is the revival that takes place in the hearts of the Ninevites. And it is one of the greatest revival stories in history. But for us, the most important revival is that takes place in our hearts individually. When we first come to the saving knowledge of Christ Jesus, and then an ongoing revival in our hearts each and every day of our lives, as we look into that mirror of God's Word, and we feel conviction. But forgiveness is there. We know that. It's promised in His Word. This chapter in the book of Jonah does lead to a great revival, a great awakening in the Ninevites. But it never would have happened if repentance hadn't happened first. The text says, in that last verse, that God relented from the disaster. Now, this didn't mean that God made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. If you're sitting here this morning and you just think, oh man, I'm just such a mess. I'm worthless. Know that God doesn't make mistakes. God loves you. He wants to grow you. But this relented from this disaster, it just means God changed direction. He changed His course. He altered His plan. But He acted in total consistency with His Word. How do we know that? Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8 says, The instant, this is God speaking, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Also in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's interesting this week as I've been preparing for this study in Jonah chapter 3, there's a lot of different ways you'll see uh, through commentaries that you can take with a lot of these uh, verses. You can go different directions with it. That's the beauty of God's Word, isn't it? There's so many truths there available to us and so many applications there available to us as well. But I came across an article this week, and I'll be honest, I hadn't intended to go this way with this teaching, but when I came across this article and when I looked at Nineveh, 
and you do a comparison to our own country, there's a lot of similarities there. A lot of similarities. This article was written by a man by the name of Robert J. Morgan, and it was written on June 11th, 2013. I recently read a bleak assessment on Christianity in America. Look at how the glory is departing. You that are aged can remember 50 years ago when the churches were in their glory. What a change there has been. Time was when the churches were beautiful. Many people were converted and willingly declared what God had done for their souls. And there were added to the churches daily such as should be saved. But conversions have become rare in this day. Look into the pulpits and see if there is such a glory as there once was. The glory has gone. The special design of providence in this country seems to be now over. Makes us weep to even think about it. Now those words, I've condensed and paraphrased them, came from a sermon by Reverend Mather in 1702. It reminds us that every generation is jeopardized by spiritual lethargy, yet God has a way of sending periodic revivals. Five of these awakenings have shaped the moral foundation of our nation, and we're in need of a sixth. First came the Great Awakening, which dates to around 1740. The writings of the French skeptics and the Enlightenment Enlightenment thinkers so pervaded the colonies that churches struggled to remain open. Colleges became hotbeds of humanism, and Christian students, what few there were, practiced their faith secretly. But New Jersey Dutchman Theodore, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, uh, began preaching the simple gospel, electrifying young adults in his area. The revival reached New England under Jonathan Edwards. George Whitefield continued the drumbeat, and this great awakening turned America from a collection of godless colonies into a God-fearing nation, setting the stage for independence and establishing the moral foundation for a new country conceived in liberty. After the Revolutionary War, Christianity lapsed into another decline as large numbers of Americans pressed into unchurched territories west of the Appalachians. In the East, too, the work of the Lord declined as people busied themselves with a building a new nation. By the 1790s, only one in ten Americas attended worship. Chief Justice John Marshall told Bishop Madison, The church is too far gone ever to be redeemed. Voltaire said, In thirty years' time, Christianity will be forgotten. Voltaire's disciple in America Thomas Paine wrote, Of all the systems of religion that were ever invented, there is nothing more derogatory to the Almighty, more unedifying to man, more repugnant to reason, and more contradictory in itself than this thing called Christianity. But another revival came. Entitled The Second Great Awakening, it started near Cane Ridge, Kentucky, where immense crowds gathered in repentance and prayer. In the East, colleges like Hampton, Sydney, and Virginia experienced dramatic spiritual renewal. Charles Finney and other evangelists continued the cause, and a generation of young people was swept into the church and into missions. Just as America was yet again sinking into spiritual sluggishness, a third awakening seized the nation. It was called the Prayer Revival, 
because of prayer meetings started by business people like Jeremiah Lanfer on Fulton Street in New York City in 1857. Thousands of people gathered daily for prayer in New York. The revival spread from city to city, and between one million and two million confessed Christ as Savior. Sailors aboard ships docking in New York Harbor experienced onboard revival even before disembarking. The effects of the prayer revival lasted a generation, but around the turn of the 20th century, Christianity again evidenced decline. That's when an awakening started in the nation of Wales after a sermon preached by a young coal miner named Evan Roberts. It's as though the literal presence of God came down and settled on Wales, it's written. One man later described it as the universal, inescapable sense of the presence of the Lord. The Welsh revival spread around the world. The writer of this article said his grandfather, W.L. Morgan, was an itinerant preacher in Tennessee who saw hundreds of conversions during this era. On the West Coast, the Azusa Street Revival catalyzed the Pentecostal movement. and In many ways, the Welsh Revival prepared the 20th century for the greatest period of global expansion in the history of Christianity. Now, more recent, the Fifth Revival occurred in the 1960s and 70s. The writer says, I'll never forget those days when an entire generation of young people turned on tuned in and dropped out. This is, as Timothy Leary put it, in 1967. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. Richard Nixon became president, and the war in Southeast Asia divided the nation. Riots erupted in the streets, students took over campuses, bombs went off, and institutions of all kind were attacked. In the middle of San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district, a Christian couple opened an evangelistic coffee house where disillusioned young people began finding Christ. Soon Christians everywhere opened coffee houses and engaged in university outreach. Ministries started, souls were saved, and the winds of revival blew thousands of hippies into the Pacific Ocean to be baptized and into swimming pools and church baptismal Uh, from coast to coast. Schools like Ashbury College in Kentucky felt dramatic moments of revival. The Jesus movement propelled a generation of young people, including me, into missions and ministries, stoking in us a fire that has never died down in our hearts. The Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Third Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival, and the Jesus movement shaped our nation more than most historians admit. They've deepened the soul of America, laid moral foundation for happiness, and inflamed successive generations of young people into lifelong ministries. Now it's time for another revival. America can't be saved by politics. The answer isn't being a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Our economists and educators can't save us. Our entertainers offer diversions without meaning, and our technology gives us progress without morality. We've seldom been in greater need for inner revitalization, and conditions are urgent. The writer says, Join me in making Psalm 85.6 a daily prayer for our nation and world. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? This is the only hope for our nation and the greatest need of our world. The Sixth Great Awakening is overdue. We have become like Nineveh. 
America does need to repent for another revival to happen. We can see that. But it happens, has to happen in our hearts first. It starts with us, with our own individual repentance and our own individual revival in our hearts. The Ninevites did that. We see in the history of Nineveh, there was this great revival. And about 150 years later, after more than a generation had passed, they turned back to their old ways. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God did judge Nineveh in the book of Nahum. We see that that happens. But at this time in our text, God relented. He didn't bring disaster upon him because they repented and God brought revival to this great city. Just as Jonah feared he would, as we'll see in chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning, Lord, we've had the opportunity to, Lord, open up your word, read through it, get application from it. Lord, we know that you speak to all of us in different ways. And we know through this text today, Lord, that you may have made an impact on someone's life with something, that, and it might be different for someone else. But Lord, the important thing is, is we know that we've been in your presence this morning. We know that you are here with us. Lord, you have things that you have taught us, want to continue to teach us, things that you want to speak to our hearts. Even now as we close the service, Lord, you're still speaking. The power of your Holy Spirit working in each one of our lives individually, giving each one of us a message that's designed specifically for us. For us as a congregation and for us individually. Lord, we thank you for speaking to our hearts. Lord, knowing that your kindness that leads us to repentance Lord because of who you are and what you've done for us by freely giving your son to die on the cross his blood spilled his body broken for each one of us individually laid in a tomb resurrected after three days to live again we were in that state once ourselves, Lord, in a place where we were dead in our sin and we needed to be revived. We needed to be resurrected. And Lord, we know that that only comes through accepting the sacrifice that was made for us through Jesus Christ, your Son. Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you for all that you went through for the likes of us, each one of us. Those of us that have relationship with you, Lord, recognize that. We've experienced times of disobedience, falling short, missing the mark. But Lord, we've come to you and confessed that. We've repented of it. And you've given us revival. It's an ongoing work, we know, Lord. But you're ever patient with us because you want to mold us and make us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Now, there may be someone here this morning that has never made that decision. Maybe this morning, through this text, you've recognized, 
wow, I do fall short myself. Uh, I don't meet God's holy standard. And I need a Savior to help me overcome that, to bridge that gap between that separation between you and God. Jesus Christ is that bridge. If you rely on Him, Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So I ask you this morning, if you've never done that, I urge you, take care of that today. Tomorrow isn't promised to any one of us. We don't know what might happen between now and tomorrow. But today is the day of salvation. You have that opportunity here to respond. If you desire to invite Jesus into your heart for the first time, to acknowledge that just by raising your hand. Saints, continue praying, interceding for those who might not know the Lord. Just simply raise your hand, put it back down so we can pray for you. Alright, Christians, it's our obligation to go before the Lord. It is life-giving to us to confess those things that we fall short in and repent and be renewed and refreshed as we saw from this passage. To be built up. God wants to do that. He just asks that we humble ourselves before Him. Father, hear the cries of the hearts of Your people this morning as they just open up to you, asking for forgiveness. Lord, it's your desire that all of us would leave this place this morning renewed, refreshed, feeling revived. 